for example, with back pain, we know that paracetamol is a very common painkiller for back pain. We know it has no effect above what's a placebo effect. Um, and people would say, that doesn't, it's not true. I can feel that it helps me taking painkillers when I have back pain. And yes, it does. It just doesn't help more than a placebo. Hi, this is the Driven Lab, hosted by Chiara, Giampiero, and Christina. Driven stands for Danish Center for Motivation and Behavior Science. The center is based at the University of Southern Denmark in Udense, Denmark, and represents a multidisciplinary effort, the first in the Scandinavian context. We deliver cutting-edge research, education, and consultancy on factors that support sustained behavior change in various contexts, such as health, education, environment, and workplace. Welcome to the new episode of our podcast, The Driven Lab. Today we are here with Alice Constell. Alice is a professor at the Unit of Clinical Biomechanics and the Center for Muscle and Joint Health at the University of Southern Denmark. She is a leading researcher in the healthcare that aims to support patient self-management and hinder unnecessary suffering from spinal pain. She is also a co-developer of GLADBACK, a program for implementation of patient education and exercises to support self-management in people with persistent back pain. Is there anything else, Alice, that you would like to add about your professional background as a researcher and a chiropractor? Yeah, maybe I could start by telling that my clinical background is as a chiropractor. So I actually, I think I, I imagined when I was a student that I would go into clinical practice and have my work life there. Um, but it turned out, not that I didn't like clinical practice, but it just turned out that I was, I missed the university, I missed academia when I was in my internship. So I actually quite soon returned to the university and became a PhD student and yeah, uh, developed from there on. Okay. Yeah, that actually answers also as our, our question, uh, what motivated you to pursue a career in this area? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, uh, in a way I would say that I wasn't very aware that I pursued a career within research. Um, from the beginning, I was more just curious how could I perhaps combine clinical practice with doing some research. Um, that turned into becoming a PhD student. And after that, I, uh, for some years, actually combined clinical practice in a hospital with uh, research. And it just happened that I realized then that it became too much being in two very different uh, types of jobs. Um, and I had to make a decision about what track to follow. Um, and research and, and education was what motivated me the most, and here I am now. Um, so I had, like I think most researchers, quite some years with um, jobs that are on limited time, and at some point I was lucky enough to become associate professor and professor and have a, a job that I think is... is really privileged here at, at SDU. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do you miss the clinical practice? Um, some aspects of it, it's, I think, the contact to patients and the sense that you make a direct um, difference to people. Um, you know, in, in research, you don't have that direct feedback that it makes a difference to anybody what you do so it's very meaningful to be in clinical practice um, but it's I, I do not uh, miss the life as practitioner uh, I think research fits me better <laughs> and do you think that your experience as a practitioner um, influence your activity as a researcher yeah um, absolutely uh, although I must admit that it's very many years since I have been in, in a clinical situation. I think I draw very much on that experience. I have a, um, a, a big respect for people uh, uh, being in, in clinical challenging uh, and having to, to work in, 
making decisions, although we have a lot of uncertainty. As a researcher, I can just say that I don't know and we have to have more research and we are not sure and we can't make conclusions. But in a clinical situation, you make conclusions all the time and you make decisions all the time based on your experience and people's preferences and existing evidence, but you have to to jingle that. And and, and uh, I think I, I, I try to I try to recall that that is the situation in clinical practice, not because it's easy for researchers to judge what's going on in clinical practice, like saying why are they so non evidence based out there and, and things like that. But but um, yeah, so so I I think I have my my background quite quite clear uh, to me uh, from clinical practice still. Yeah, because I think it's is the same. I was a practitioner myself before join a university and I think that uh, you, you have like a different, better, not better, but a different understanding of how practitioner perceive uh, s- some aspect of their life. So, and that can inform actually your, your research or the, the direction that some of your research uh, take. So yeah. it's, uh, it's really helpful. And it's also very clear to me that Many things just look very different from a clinical perspective. In in my field of research, there's not a strong evidence in in, and I think that goes for very much healthcare. There's very there's not very not very many treatments where we do not have strong evidence that the treatment in itself makes a lot of difference to people's outcomes. But when you are in a clinical situation, it's very difficult to grasp that in your mind you see you treat people you they come back they are better and and to understand really deeply inside that that does not necessarily have anything to do with your treatment it's almost impossible um so for example with back pain we know that paracetamol is a very common uh, painkiller for back pain we know it has no effect above what's a placebo effect um and people would say, that doesn't, it's not true. I can feel that it helps me taking painkillers and I have back pain. And yes, it does. It just doesn't help more than a placebo. But placebo is effective too. Uh, and, and grasping that in a clinical situation is almost impossible. So I think there are really some challenges in, in, in clinical practice that I try to keep in mind uh, as a researcher. That's very fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, well, we are here today because uh, we obviously want to talk uh, also about behavioral sciences. And um, uh, in my previous experience before uh, uh, joining academia, uh, I encountered some professionals that typically associate behavioral sciences with only health promotion and uh, lifestyle change. But behavioral sciences is much more and uh, can have a deep impact on uh, primary care. So when and how did you start integrating behavioral science into your work in pain management? Um, I, I, in a way, I, when, you, when I was to come here today, I was starting thinking about that question and I kind of realized that I think I worked with behavioral science already when I was a PhD student. I just didn't know. Um, my PhD was about whiplash injuries and... Uh, pain ed- uh, patient education for people who have been in a car accident and had injured their neck or pain from the neck. And uh, our hypothesis was that if you are educated about the pain, you would react differently to it in a helpful way. And I guess that's very much about behavioral science, actually. Uh, but I didn't think of it in, in those terms. I don't think I even knew about uh, such a thing as behavioral science. Um when I first started being more aware about uh, integrating theories from behavioral science was when we started developing the GLAD back program that you mentioned before. Um, so the GLAD back program is a implementation project where we uh, try to help clinicians to use evidence-based um, practices for back pain in primary care, uh, integrating patient education with supervised exercises. And the aim of the clinical intervention is to help people with back pain self-manage their back pain better. And that is actually 
introducing a behavioral change in patients. Um, from our side, it's also an intervention towards clinicians because we try to motivate clinicians to do something differently in, in their clinical practice. Um, and when we started looking at how might we motivate clinicians for uh, integrating something new in their practice, we started looking more into behavioral change or behavioral, uh, behavior science, looking into uh, things like the COMB model and theoretical domains framework uh, t- in order to design a, a clinician training program that might uh, be motivating for, for clinicians. Yeah, I see. And uh, since you mentioned uh, the Combi model, um, it just came to my mind uh, the fact that, well, I'm also using uh, the same model in my research. So I'm just curious to hear uh, what you see as benefit and disadvantages, perhaps, of using this specific model, if you see any, out yeah. of your mind. <laughs> yeah, um, I think um, with any using any model, I think the benefits is often that you become aware of different aspects of whatever you are designing or evaluating. Um, so just having some frameworks to make you think about, did we consider this and this and this aspect? And I think for both in implementation science, there's a lot of frameworks in implementation science and there's a lot of frameworks in behavioral science. And sometimes maybe the downside is that you get almost so confused about what to choose and is one framework work better than the other. But I think choosing something, uh, the benefit is that you become aware of aspects of, of your uh, interventions or your evaluations that you might not be otherwise. Um, I think we, in the Gladback program, for example, just just having this uh, element of of opportunity uh, in the COMB model that you pointed towards, um, make sure that people have an opportunity to do this, make, made us be more aware of that the intervention should be easy, for example, having no exercise equipment, something that you can do with your own body weight and things like that. And we made, um, it's very likely that we could have come across that on, in other ways, but just that you have these that you almost tick off some boxes and say, it's m- I may not react to it, but at least I've considered it. Um, I, I think that's helpful. And f- I think also it, it for behavioral science, it is very uh, helpful that it supports us in drawing on experiences and uh, evidence from other fields because it um, these frameworks they try to say what are the general things that applies to uh, to d- across fields and ac- across health conditions or across um, behavioral change targets um, and this is a way to in a practical way to learn from other fields also in your research. Yeah, I also believe so. Yeah, so the Combi model, I think, is a great uh, framework to use uh, because it can be easily understood and uh, applied across different fields, even though a person not may necessarily come from uh, psychology or behavioral economics, and uh, it's extremely comprehensive. Mm. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit on the... Um, the back pain, like, because I can speak for personal reasons. <laughs> so, in in your in your experience as a practitioner or um, as a researcher, w- what do you think is like? How do you think back pain affect people's lives in general? Like chronic back pain, of course. Mm-hmm. Like people that experience that. W- what is the, the the most difficult part for them to live with this problem? Um, people with chronic back pain, they actually express that it affects all aspects of their lives. That it's about the way they see themselves. It's about the way that the roles that they have in family and society. It's about their workability. Their worries about future and economy. It's about the way they move, the way they sleep. So it of of course, not everybody is affected in all these ways, but m- people have really um, explain how having pain affects so many aspects of their lives. 
Um, I think also it's very common across uh, patients' stories and, and, and patient uh, research that people with back pain, they often uh, explain that they feel very mistrusted and uh, unvalidated. It's like you can't see on some, uh, you can't look at a person and say, hey, she must have a lot of back pain, and maybe from some expression, but you don't understand that there's something wrong with this person from the outside. And uh, people with back pain, they often say that they feel that they have to like prove that it, they are not just saying that they have pain because it's an invisible uh, condition. Um, and they also express a lot of frustration with healthcare and healthcare systems, having many different explanations, and also uh, within healthcare system, feeling that clinicians do not believe them. Um, so, uh, and I think one thing is also that now you pointed to, of course, chronic back pain, but maybe one of the challenges is that back pain is something that almost everybody experiences. So in a way, maybe we tend to think that we understand what uh, living with severe chronic back pain is because we have an experience of back pain. So I think this that everybody say, yeah, but I've also had back pain. But m at least I can say for myself, I've never had something that really interrupted with my life. But still, I think that I have some experience with having back pain. I've I had that perception in my back uh, and, and that is probably also what makes it or could be what makes it difficult for us to really uh, understand that back pain is not just one thing and what most people experience is not the same life interrupting experience as what people with chronic persistent back pain uh, may uh, live with yeah i can relate like because i I can relate to that. Like, I don't think I have chronic back pain, but I can feel something there. And uh, and I even experienced acute back pain at some point in my life, like a few months ago, and uh, which 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 felt kind of disabling in, uh, in 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 a lot of way. I remember I was in the gym, I was just warming up, and I had this instant like pain in my back, and for um, the next few days I couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't walk, I couldn't go climb the stairs. And uh, and I think that uh, one one thing that people would tend to do is that okay, my back is hurt. I don't do. I'm I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to rest. And but then I started to read something, and uh, I started to do like really small exercises every day, like even uh, like after two hours that I had the injuries, and it improved a lot over the course of a few days. So, and this is like related to one of uh, point of your research that, you know, the physical activity and moderate to, moderate to vigorous physical activity does actually reduce the, 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 the problem of or the experience of back pain in, in, a, long, in a long term. And uh, do you think that people tend to consider physical activity a problem for the back pain like to say okay I can't do that because I have like uh, back pain rather than uh, the opposite so I should do more physical activity to to prevent or just to uh, support uh, manage my back pain um, I don't I actually don't know what is the general perception uh, but I think both perceptions are out there and I also understand if if people are very confused what to think about that um, maybe you had a a particular uh, good background for understanding the information that you looked for, um, but if you have no uh, health-related uh, background or uh, don't have the education or the uh, just the knowledge to to really uh, differentiate between the information you find, it's really a mess out there. Try to Google back pain and you will have like a hundred different cures for or, or suggestions. Do this, do that. And and also, as we talked about just before, everybody has some experience with back pain. So you also mentioned in 
to your neighbor, you have back pain and you have a separate advice and, and your doctor would uh, say a third thing. So it's really, really difficult for people to figure out what is the information to go with. And you can find information about uh, resting and about doing different kinds of exercises and a lot of, of information of how not to move. Um move this way and not that way, and that's also very difficult. Mm. Um, I think the general um, information that is available now goes much more in the direction of uh, movement and physical activity is good for you than the opposite. That has taken very many years. Uh, Like some... some some decades ab- uh, uh, back, it would have been the treatment for back pain that you rested. And at some point, we started understanding people would only, uh, even be hospitalized just to rest for your back pain. At some point, we started realizing that that was not a good uh, approach, and, and, and it has become really the general approach that and the general knowledge that movement is good for your back. Uh, but it takes, for that to make sense, you have to understand your back pain as something different than for example a fracture it makes very good sense that you um, immobilize when you have a fracture to make it heal and if that is a um, when you experience very severe acute back pain that may be the um, the beliefs that you have that this must be something similar to having fractured something. And then it makes really good sense to try to immobilize and stay, it not move, not moving. We just know that that's not the mechanisms in back pain. Um, but I, I think that when people react, the way that people react to the pain is really in many senses it is sensible it's just sensible from from the knowledge that you have or the understanding that you have Uh, so um, you have to understand something about the pain not being a sign of severe injury in order to for it to make sense to start moving Hmm. yeah that makes sense and uh, on this note you mentioned earlier like uh, the the painkiller like people don't think that the painkiller works but it actually don't work more than than the placebo and i can see that in different field there is this tendency to overuse uh, uh, medicines or uh, drugs like it was uh, i think at a conference in dublin last year they talk about this uh, diabetes uh, diabetes drug that can be used to lose weight and a lot of people started to use that and i would start wondering okay but if we have these shortcuts for achieving like a goal, how can people uh, uh, modify like the, their behavior? Like how can people engage, for example, in more physical activity? Or how can people feel motivated to engage in physical activity to reduce or to, to improve a problem that they have? And in terms of like back pain, how, how do you think people can... Uh, uh, the, the, the use of uh, painkillers is uh, uh, hampering the, the the aspect like of, of doing physical activity just to uh, promote uh, health uh, back health. Um, I must say that I have no clear answer on on that. That is truly evidence based, but um, I think that we have a a. Our health or disease understanding has been built very much on something that is a a promoting like a, a, a fixer culture that we, uh, we we experience some symptoms we go to the doctor we have some drug or some treatment that can cure um, that disease uh, and that is of course. I think that's very understandable. It's really easy. It doesn't take a lot of engagement. Um, drugs are very often very cheap also. So And, and in Denmark, you also... Um, you may have reimbursement if you have some medical um, stuff that can fix your problem. So there's uh, really many things that are incitements for uh, if there is a medical solution um, for your problem. Uh, with back pain, it's just that 
um, it's not a solution in the long run, and even in the in an acute phase, there's limited evidence that the drugs makes a difference. On top of that, uh, back pain has been a main driver in the opioid crisis. Uh, we think of that uh, think as a, a problem in the stage where uh, there's a lot of overuse of opioids, and people even uh, yeah. Deaths related to opioids are very much driven by uh, things that started out being prescribed medications, and but that's also a European problem. And in Denmark, we have also had actually a very huge uh, use of opioids for many years. It's it's reduced now, but um, but if if people are perceiving that as a necessary um, solution for to uh, for the problem um it's yeah it, it makes sense again to to go for that uh, so you have to know about alternatives and you have to be supported in alternatives for um for some people it's it's manageable to start trying out some things what would be a good solution for my back what feels good for me but for some people, that's nothing they can engage in themselves. Maybe because they don't have the experience with uh, different fa- forms of, of uh, movement and physical activity. Maybe because they have so much pain that they can't really start uh, engaging in movement themselves without support. So it takes something more to start a, a active self-management strategy than to start taking painkillers. Um, so I, I think it's it just asks much more also of healthcare practitioners. If, if we think of a healthcare situation, it takes more time, it takes more um, engagement, it takes more personal communication skills to inca- to support people in self-management than to prescribing a drug. Uh, a drug, it sounds really... <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But, but to, uh, to use pharmacological treatments, uh, it, it maybe just often fits better also with the kind of healthcare system that we have. They have a very limited time with each patient, maybe in general practice, and it doesn't take a lot of explanation to say, hey, try these painkillers. They probably help you yeah so it's more about like a personalized treatment sometimes and i was and i think it's the same in italy i'm from italy and i was listening to this interview to an oncologist and he was saying that you know we have like people with different form of cancer but we have one fits all we have one cure for everybody but and we don't have time to listen to uh, each uh, patient's uh, background because then we can uh, we don't have time to personalize the, the cure for them so it's a it's a problem within europe i suppose and the way in which our health systems work yeah it seems globally that there's the same kind of problem that we have for very many years believed in like a what i would call a traditional biomedical model where you find something, a, a diagnosis, and you direct your treatment and uh, that in order to fix people or cure people. But with the kind of diseases that we see, not only about pain, but a global the global burden of disease is really, really much related to chronic diseases. That is not only about some particular disease mechanism that can be solved with a medicine or surgery or something like that it's it's things that requires lifestyle changes and, and ongoing uh, management over many years um, and we have made the mistake uh, we as a society <laughs> globally in back pain to to be very much directed by that biomedical model we have introduced a lot of uh, diagnostic investigations like MRI scans and fancy diagnostic procedures to look for something that we could treat. And when we started looking at people's backs on MRI scans and we saw that there were all kinds of different things in there that we thought shouldn't be there, we started uh, using that as a diagnosis that could be treated like you had some degenerative 
alterations in, in, in the cartilage in your in your back and we thought that was what provided gave people the pain and and invented a lot of different treatments. But globally it just seems that more healthcare and more treatment has not reduced the problem of back pain. The problem of back pain has been increasing and increasing with more and more fancy diagnostic procedures and more and more treatments. So now for some years we've been backing off and tried to understand that we should uh, not, probably not uh, invent more fancy treatments, but we should support people in, in coping with back pain and managing back pain in active ways. And the good thing about that is that it actually we can actually see that the pain and disability can change dramatically without curing a underlying structural thing in people's backs. That effective coping strategies are actually eff- effective for people's pain and disability. It makes a difference to them. It's not just saying live with it as it is. Yeah, and uh, I do agree that uh, our. Uh, primary care systems still have a strong emphasis on uh, curing instead of preventing. Uh, However, drawing on uh, your research, uh, uh, there is a clear uh, uh, effort to try to uh, direct uh, more towards a a psychosocial uh, management approach. So how uh, how this uh, research has it been uh, going and uh, what are the latest uh, findings in terms of uh, trying to bring uh, this uh, uh, management, uh, psychosocial management approach? Um, I think if we think in, uh, talk about research in general, some of the really important findings, not uh, particularly from my research, but over recent years that have informed some of the things that I also do is one thing is, what we know from from pain uh, physiology and pain science that previously we thought a lot about i think we, we understood pain very much as either it was physiological you had an injury something was wrong or it was psychological so when we couldn't help people with treatments we started thinking about there's something psychologically wrong but now we know that physiological or biological structural things and psychological mental things, they always play together. And that goes for pain in all of us. So uh, the pain experience is... uh, So so this understanding about the pain experience, that it's not only a one-to-one thing with what's going on in your structure, in your back or in your joints or wherever, it's... Um, it's really a complex mechanism of our brain's interpretation of what's going on in your tissue, but also uh, affected by your worries, your stress, your sleep, um, your previous experiences. And that is a physiological process. It alters signal um, uh, the signals between your the... the cells in your brain so it is really a physiological thing it just relates to mental factors also so i think that has made a difference that we have started to understand that it's not about either physiological or psychological it's these things always work together and one of the things that we use a lot from that in uh, back pain manage- management and, and in the research that i do is that that provides options for modifying pain that people can actually engage in themselves. Because if it was only about structure, you would need to have that structure fixed. And that would probably take a doctor, a physiotherapist, a chiropractor, somebody who could do that to you. But understanding that pain is also uh, highly affected by how you uh, move, how you sleep, how you think, how worried you are about it, that provides just a ma- many different uh, ways to modify and address the pain. And many of these things are things that people can actually um, be engaged in or, or do something with or to themselves. So it provides opportunity for self-management that we have now this knowledge. So I think that has been that's been really important for pain uh, management, um, and then I think also we have seen some 
uh, examples from studies now that uh, using this uh, um, knowledge about how to support people in self-management and in in um, finding ways to work around the spine that you have instead of trying to alter the back finding ways to move finding ways to behave that that has proven to be um, effective also for people with really long-lasting pain uh, so it might s- sound like all this talk about self-management could sound a little like we have been given up on helping people but actually i think it's see it's starting to show that these are uh, effective ways of, of management and, and of treatment that makes also a as it seem it can make a long-lasting uh, difference to people also okay very interesting and uh, what about the role of um, health professionals uh, in uh, taking up these uh, new approaches and perhaps what are the based on your research the most important uh, psychological de- uh, determinants that has prevented them to uh, use these approaches? Um, I think what we see is really challenging is that um, this kind of of paradigm shift in treatment, it really challenges your role as a, a, a healthcare provider. It kind of moves you from a role of being the expert that made the diagnosis and told people what to do, treated it, uh, and more into a role of a coach or a supporter, uh, where you still have your uh, professional background and your professional expertise that is an important part of of judging what kind of of, of situation and disease is this, but, but for clinicians to um, find a way to use that expertise but at the same time recognizing that a lot of the expertise needed for the treatment to work is the patient's expertise and experience. That is um, really a, a mind shift. And clinicians, they say that they um, feel that they, they miss the competences to uh, integrate the knowledge about uh, things like psychological mechanisms in pain in their treatment um, and they feel um, they feel unprepared to really engage with individuals to um, to work with uh, with the individual person's experience instead of me being the expert that can tell you what to do, then you as a patient become the expert that can, and I would more facilitate that you find a way in that works for you because we see that it's not the same thing that works for everybody. So, And the only way to explore what works for you as an individual patient is to work with your story and your experience. So clinicians are challenged in changing their role without feeling that they um, are uh, that, that their expertise isn't needed anymore. Uh, and I think the clinical ex- ex- uh, expertise as exper- and experience is really needed because when people come and seek care, it's because they have not figured out the way out of this on their own. So they need uh, support. They also need, from the starting point, somebody who can actually um, assess them and make sure that this is ordinary back pain, uh, that it takes self-management, that back pain can also, in uh, it's not very often, but it can be a symptom of, of other diseases that have yeah. to be ruled out. So you need clinical experience expertise still but you also when you are at a point where you seek care it's because you wasn't you wasn't able to manage on your own so it takes some expertise to point to that um, that there are different solutions that we could try out but it's the patient who will have to find what is the solution that works for me both in terms of what my back pain reacts well to but also what is a approach that work in my life circumstances uh, 
that is, of course, highly important with back pain as with everything else, that it it just doesn't lead anywhere if I say to somebody, you have to go um, walking for an hour every afternoon if they have to pick up their children and, and make <laughs> dinner or, or whatever. So it, uh, every solution has to come with that individual mm-hmm. for to make sense both in their terms fitting their beliefs their experience their pain response but also the, the life circumstances yeah yeah it seems like a, a substantial uh, shift uh, of approaches and what about the role of um, uh, the health professionals um, does uh, their self-efficacy play a role in how they manage to shift uh, to this new approach of managing the patient yeah, I think there's very many things that uh, are in play in terms of, of that shift. Um, and I think it's really, um, yeah, in a broad sense, it again comes down to uh, motivation. And we can learn a lot from motivational sciences uh, in also investigating these things. Because uh, one thing that is a... a barrier for a shift is the lack of perceived competence that I actually don't know how to go about this. I don't have the tools or the skills and that's something we try to work with to to develop um, easily applicable tools to help people uh, explain pain in a more uh, nuanced way than just about structure. Also integrating uh, tools to facilitate um, behavioral change such as tools for goal setting and problem solving, things like that. Um, so, um, so really much may come down to that clinicians simply have not the training to to work with non-structural aspects of pain and we need to, to address that better. And that's both in in undergraduate training, um, that undergraduate training is it is shifting these years. Uh, but I also think, uh, of course, there are then some, some clinicians out there who haven't been exposed to that training and we have to pick up on that. But I also think that some of, the, of that training probably have to be postgraduate and integrated with being in clinical practice because it is really difficult to learn interpersonal skills uh, in theory sitting at the university um, so I think we will need to um, work more with um, lifelong training uh, where you work on where we work with the experiences and and that we help people more to look at their own practices and, and develop ways for uh, assessing your own practice and reflecting on your own practice um, it's clear that, if I, and I don't think that only goes for clinicians, I think that goes for all of us, That, but we know from clinicians <laughs> that when we observe their practice, it's often quite different from what their own perception is of the practice, and that probably goes very much also in relation to communication style. Um, and I think that's something is, that's difficult to learn from school, um, all these interpersonal skills that seems to drive some of there are some some very general common aspects of effective treatment across many diseases and across many treatments and many of these common effects are related to interpersonal skills and and communication and to helping uh, people uh, engage in a meaningful way so uh, and we have to for clinicians to be motivated for that, it's both about feeling competent. It's also something practical about uh, having the uh, the opportunity to set up the time to do that. Also, it's the financial things in, in this, that if you're paid for very many, very short consultations, it's difficult to mm-hmm. just change your practice from one day to the other. Um so there are both some personal things in in, underst- in the way you understand yourself as a clinician, uh, some role things. There are some things about 
the competencies, the skills you have, and then there's some organizational things, some system things, and that both comes to the way that clinical practice is organized. Uh, but I also think we have some system drivers of the old traditional biomedical um, way of, of addressing diseases that is difficult, that, that kind of, of hinders a, a shift like uh, we try to promote that it's really not that important to uh, put a mo- lot of, of, of focus on the structural diagnosis because that's not the thing that we can treat. But people are asked for a structural diagnosis if they meet the uh, social system, for example. You will need a diagnosis to have reimbursement if you have long-term sick leave or if you are... Uh, in a situation where you have no longer a workability and will need a, a retirement pension, you would be asked for a very specific diagnosis. Uh, so there are some clashes between mm. also uh, a modern uh, clinical practice and the system that that integrates <laughs> with uh, that is also uh, something that can, cannot be solved just by clinicians. Um, and, and that is... I guess uh, also a thing that we have to be very aware of in behavior science that it's not everything that comes down to person. Uh, when we talk about uh, personal engagement and motivation, I think we should be very aware also that people live in circumstances and in in cultures that uh, so so that we don't take uh, I think sometimes the uh, motivational approach come with the risk of leaving everything to a personal level uh, and and that is not really fair you know <laughs> that that we think that that people and individuals can solve all their problems yeah. themselves we also live in in cultures and in circumstances that uh, where it may be difficult for example, adapting to your back pain in your work life, if your work life is very have very little flexibility, uh, can be very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really, really important points. Uh, it's not just about uh, looking at a health problem from a purely behavioral uh, perspective, but also looking at the whole socioeconomic, uh, ecological model and mm. uh, what's the culture, what are the political system and so on, and how we can uh, all collaborate together to bring uh, that change. Yeah. 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 It's really fascinating. I could listen to you for hours. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see all the different aspects that play a pivotal role in, uh, in, in people and... Uh, and it's definitely a lot of food for thoughts and how c- how these can be can be implemented at different levels like you mentioned the undergrad the postgraduate uh, um, education from clinicians uh, the education for patients as well it's uh, it's interesting <laughs> yeah so as we are getting uh, towards uh, the end of this episode uh, yeah, <laughs> since uh, uh, time has been just flying yeah, perhaps yeah. Uh, we have a few Last uh, yeah, questions. Like I'm curious about like with um, you, you've be, you've been really successful in in academia and, and uh, in research, and I'm interested like about w- what is the project that you are most proud of, the project that is something that you you are really proud of and that you can share with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I f- I don't think I have one project that I'm really really proud of but I think I have like I've had two tracks to my research that uh, I hope have uh, make made a contribution and one is about uh, the cause of back pain the trajectories of back pain that uh, we have once we understood back pain very much as ah, you have an acute episode and then that's it or you have chronic back pain and we have done some work to explore in detail how back pain behavior over time and have seen that back pain is very often a, a ep- episodic, recurrent, fluctuating um, uh, condition. And I think that helps uh, us also uh, supporting people in understanding their condition uh, as something that is not uh, just either acute or chronic. Um, and 
I think the other thing is our work in integrating uh, what we know from evidence into clinical practice in uh, things like the GLAD back pro- projects where we have um, where I think we have some societal impact because we have been part of of trying to uh, make this shift from more passive care into a considering how we can support self-management and empower people uh, also from health from healthcare perspective yeah yeah i think it's uh, I, yeah it, it is important i suppose and very probably fulfilling like that, that, that knowing that you 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 made like a societal impact thanks and finally, looking forward, is there something that you would like to achieve in your professional career that you haven't achieved yet? Yeah, I think there's really a lot to do in this field still. So <laughs> I hope that we can make progress in that. Um, and I think, and I, I hope that we can also do uh, uh, new projects on um, on clinician uh, training and how we can support clinicians in developing uh, the interpersonal skills that we haven't trained clinicians very well in using more of the knowledge or experience also from training of psychologists into uh, training of people who work uh, with physical treatments because it's not about changing or, or changing back pain treatment into psychology it's about integrating physical and psychological things also in the management um, and I hope I can uh, be part of of understanding how we do that best. Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> we have uh, these uh, five uh, very quick and special questions. <laughs> yeah, uh, am I going to ask them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're just quick question, five questions, and uh, I, I shall start. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> Cycling or driving? Cycling. Getting up early or sleeping in? Getting up early. Okay. Training or uh, couch potating? Training. <laughs> Procrastinating or rushing to finish it? Uh, <laughs> I think that depends on the task. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I thought you were going to be so... Quick and all the but the last one was too <laughs> difficult. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Alice, thank you very much for being with us. It was like really a pleasure listening to you, your research, what you've done, and what you would like to to achieve in the future. It's uh, it's inspiring and also, as I say, like a lot of food for thoughts. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank A new episode will be released on the 1st of every month. Make sure you subscribe to The Driven Lab on your favorite platform. And once you're there, we would really appreciate if you leave us a review. And you can also follow us on X, LinkedIn or Instagram, driven underscore SDU. So join us on this journey as we explore the potential of understanding and influencing human behavior for a brighter future.